April 21st, 2013, lecture discussion number 107 on the book of Romans. As is most often the case, there has accumulated a, a heap of material that now has to be gone through. Everything from acquired characteristic theory in contrast to the law of limitation of variation in progeny to the germ cell lecture that we had last week in uh, the continuity of germ plasm in women to the chromosome structure of the 23rd pair. This known consequence relationship that has occurred that I hope you have begun to find in Adam and Noah. Uh, I just have somebody here today who has sons, Adam and Noah. There is, uh, Adam knew about consequences and Noah knew about consequences and they both did what they did with full understanding of the potential consequences of it. Um, Adam, especially with respect to animals, uh, Noah, of course, will get to with respect to the contamination element that is there. And also this uh, Adam and Christ, uh, Adam as a type of Christ relationship, that has to be uh, sifted through again. And that's just to name a few that I've heaped up on the table, um, and uh, I have to get them all He's uh, cleaned up because uh, I get mail. You haven't finished this part. And they're right. I haven't finished. The truth is, is I haven't finished any part ever. And so that's just how it goes. It's uh, That, by the way, is one of the great proofs of what the Bible really is. It's always been the case that great scholars of Scripture have understood the cause and effect of the virgin birth and the body resurrection. So begin to learn that. It, for today, at least, if I get this pounded in, that's my goal. I have this relationship uh, interdependency between the virgin birth and the body resurrection. You might remember last week I was talking about my visitors that knocked on the door, the man and the young boy, uh, who uh, do not believe uh, that Christ was body resurrected. If they don't believe that, then they have destroyed their salvation system. Um, there's no possibility anyone is saved if that's the case. But many scholars understand that a lot do not, unfortunately. The scholarship died out in the church probably about 1960. It certainly died out in many churches probably prior to the uh, 1890s. Um, uh, but it disappeared, I think, in the church today. We have uh, focused instead of on learning the Bible and what is actually in it, we have this comic book approach to it. And no one knows what's in their Bible at all now, probably anywhere. That's a real shame. Or so, so small a percentage that you can't even tell. When I began, as you know, speaking in front of any group, uh, and occasionally they, they let me, I have to wear something on my ankle to be out of the house. That's a joke for the internet people. It's not really true. Uh, but, uh, when I begin to explain what they actually think they believe, they're stunned. They don't know. They don't know what's in their Bible anymore. That died out, I, I will say, in the 1960s. There's a few rare exceptions, but certainly that's the overwhelming situation that we find ourselves in. So when I say scholars figured out this relationship between the virgin birth and the body resurrection and that they are interdependent, I mean uh, many, many times, uh, many years ago, they, that was uh, discussed commonly. It isn't today. And as you study on your own, um, you're going to find this relationship uh, described in various ways. Mostly, I see it done this way. Uh, they say this, and this is in quotes, what God had to do to make salvation possible. That's the way you'll find it most often, or words to that effect. 
And, and every time I've read that, I always thought it should be worded slightly differently along the lines of what God did and why he did it. Or the what why of the virgin birth resurrection. You'll see it that way as well. But the result is the same. Everybody who takes on this interdependence between what happened in the virgin birth and then what happened in the body resurrection, and you can put the crucifixion in there if you will, but uh, that's less common. Whenever they see this, they know that the virgin birth and the body resurrection cannot be separated. As soon as I have one, I have the other. I cannot have the body resurrection without the virgin birth. I cannot have the virgin birth without the body resurrection. It's impossible. And so when the guy knocked on the door and he got rid of this one, then he gets rid of that one. And if he got rid of this one, then I have no pure blood. I have contaminated blood with death generation. Okay, so everyone who walks this path of analyzing the virgin birth and body resurrection relationship ends up with the same understanding. Now, if, you, if you're going to take it on, you're going to find a tremendous amount of wisdom here, as you would expect. And last Sunday, I started the discussion of the interdependence between the virgin birth and the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one necessitates the other, and likewise the inverse. The phrase it another way, notice I'm repeating myself to make sure that I get it in here today. One necessitates the other. Uh, perhaps more understandable, word it this way. Uh, notice the caveat word, perhaps. Uh, let me try it as carefully as I can. I wrote it down so that I would read it right. And so these are my words, and I hate to ever admit that. The one who is born of a virgin fertilized by God himself will be God. Let me repeat that. The one who is born of a virgin fertilized by God himself will be God himself. And therefore, his physical death will be unique, singular, unrepeatable, unimaginable, absolutely alone. There will have never been a death like it anywhere ever and could not ever have a death like it anywhere. The virgin birth makes that so. And his body resurrection must then occur. It is impossible for it not to occur. As soon as I establish I have a virgin birth, then I'm going to have a distinctive death, a death that has never occurred before and could not ever occur. So I have a distinctive virgin birth, a distinctive death, and I have a unique, absolutely alone, singular, uh, unrepeatable physical death and resurrection. Did I lose my... sounded funny. So let me say it all again, because I start interrupting myself. The one who is born of a virgin... Fertilized by God himself, which is what the Bible says, will be God himself. In other words, the infant is God. Fertilized by God and is God simultaneously. Start again. The one who is born of a virgin, fertilized by God himself, will be God himself. And therefore, his physical death will be unique. Singular, unrepeatable, unimaginable, absolutely alone, and his body resurrection must then occur when he wills it to occur. And he will will it to occur. That's John 
It's a command from the Godhood. I lay it down, I take it up. That is something the triune, it's a decision of the triune Godhead. It is a command. The fact of the virgin birth necessitates the fact of the body resurrection of Jesus Christ and the reverse. So, hopefully I've got that pounded in now. You cannot separate them. You cannot have one without the other. Very important that you know that. And when you've worked yourself through it and why that is and how it's so, especially with the biological implications, that's why we did the continuity of germplasm and all of that previously, and we'll get back to it because I wanted to pound into you the implications of the continuity of germplasm and how that, uh, of course, accomplishes the virgin birth and not only accomplishes it, but explains it. Why it's there. What's the meaning of it is. In other words, what was Jesus Christ's perfect... Here's a question that is biologically implicated. What is Jesus Christ's perfect humanity like? We make a mistake, anthropomorphizing Jesus Christ. It's common. It's in every church. It's horrible. It's absolutely wrong, and it is, frankly, blasphemous and heresy. It's, in, it's, it's so common you cannot escape it. But he did not, he had perfect humanity, has perfect humanity. We do not. Anyone who's been married, had a child, knows immediately there is no perfect humanity. He was perfect humanity, is perfect humanity. I need to stop using the past tense. It's, that's blasphemy, right? His body has no death generation in it. Mine does, yours does. I can see you from here. You have it, every one of you. No exceptions. And it's obvious. We have it at an accelerated rate compared to the pre-flood world. We have accelerated aging, accelerated death decay. We talk, talked about that with regard to what else is accelerated in us. And um, his body, Jesus Christ's body, had no generation of death in it, no sin. His body is perfect humanity, and he is God inside of perfect humanity, and that is called, as you know, the hypostatic, oops, hypostatic union. God himself adding perfect humanity. And the virgin birth makes it obvious that the, his humanity was perfect. That's the why of it. It's also how he did it. Back to that statement that they say all the time. What God had to do to make salvation possible that I don't particularly like, but that the virgin birth is something that he did um, as a result of the sin condition that has transferred the death generation or the mortogenic generation, the mortogenic, gener mortogenic factor, sorry, that is in the male sperm. So anyway, God and perfect humanity, hypostatic union together. So the most obvious, and why, now you've got to ask immediately, why did he do this? Obviously, he has a reason for doing what he's doing. And it isn't, by the way, just to provide blood and flesh and salvation to us. That is not his primary focus. It's not what he's doing primarily. That is a subsequent or a tertiary uh, 
Everybody said, God did it, did it to save me. No. You, you, we are saved as a byproduct, if you will. That is what we call dispensational thinking, but we'll get to that some other lecture. So again, God and perfect humanity, hypostatic union, and so we end up with the most obvious of the obvious questions being immediately obvious. Somebody on the internet will laugh in 15 seconds. Let me reword it another way. What is the death process for a person that is God and perfect humanity? We know the death process for us. We do not have. We are not deity and we have death generation. We know our death process. We can find it, see it, expect it. What was his death process? It isn't the same as ours. He's perfect humanity and he is God inside of it. Let me ask it a different way. How does this person, God, inside a perfect human vehicle, if you will, how does this person die? Can he be killed? Cannot be killed. Does not decay. Is infinite. How does he die? His death process is unrepeatable, unimaginable, absolutely singular. There has never been one like it. And so now, uh, well, let me go on, I'll get to that. It is. It should be impossible for him to die, except that since he is God in the flesh, he wills it to be possible. He even says so, what is impossible for you is not impossible for me. But he has to snuff his life out himself. It cannot be taken from him. No one, he says it over and over again, no one can take my life. I have to do it. You're you're a puny little tiny. Um, you're the smallest of all the cockroaches. You humans, you can't touch me. Don't even be silly. Understand who I am here. And I gave something away there. Now, once you realize the question of how does he die physically is on the table, the most obvious of the obvious questions. That spawns the least obvious of the obvious questions. If I have the most obvious of the obvious questions, then I absolutely have to have the least obvious of the obvious questions. And your job, of course, as you go through life, is to try to find the least obvious. Who wants to find the most obvious? What really exactly happened at the crucifixion of Christ? You have to wrestle with that now. Nobody discusses it. I promise you that if you go out finding somebody who has, uh, looking for somebody, searching for somebody who has thoughtfully and exhaustively, uh, considered the implications of the Godhood of Christ with respect to his physical death in, in his perfect humanity, you're going to be on a long, difficult search. The books are very rare. I have one that discusses it. Out of the, oh my goodness, I have a thousand books. Easy. I have one. I have a monograph of a man who died in the 1940s. And when he did this lecture in a college class, he had a woman sit there and transcribe it. And I have his. That's a treasure, by the way. That's the first time I ever heard it. I guess somebody said, read this and tell me what you think. I was probably 25 years old. And I was in Hawaii. And I didn't have any interest at all in reading it. 
And he wouldn't feed me unless I read it. Because I was living at his house. Because he knew how important it was to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ, what happened to him, what he did exactly and really at the crucifixion, no one knows. We can figure it out, but no one knows it. It is lost knowledge. It was once there. So you can find monographs and you can find lectures on it and mine are out there and Every now and then I get a letter from somebody saying, I've never heard this before. And I go, yeah, I know. It is lost. The church has thrown it aside. Purposely, by the way. I can assure you that if you find a book, let's just use an example of one that I know that's coming out. You find a book and it's entitled, Killing Jesus... That book is instantaneously identifiable as worthless. That's somebody who has not a clue about Christ and who he is and how this hypostatic union, which is a great mystery, has come into being. And I, I shouldn't, I, I, what did, how did, what did I say? I said it's worthless. I haven't read it. It isn't out yet. But I promise you it's worthless. I doubt that my opinion is going to depress his sales. And I know that's strong language, and, and my apologies to the authors if I've offended them. Not, not really. That's a fake sorry, isn't it? Anyway, the impact of the Godhood of Jesus Christ on his birth and death is a discussion that very few have, and, and we are mostly on our own here. I don't know anybody else that takes it on. And pastors don't take it on. How come? Yeah, they don't want to destroy or even question what is primarily known in the church today as or thought to be truth. They don't want to rock the... Listen, i got a money stream coming in. Not here, obviously. But I'm speaking in a, as one of them. They, they, they have a money stream coming in. And to start taking on hypostatic union and virgin birth and body resurrection and all perfect humanity and the death of Christ in a proper logical way, it's destructive to that money stream. Not going to do it. We're going to have our Easter egg hunt. Not on the feast day of first fruits, but on some day of called Ishtar. And we're going to roll them eggs out. And we're going to have the little bunny rabbits and the chickens. And we're going to make it all happen. And that's what we're doing. That produces, people will bring their kids for free candy. I would go for free candy, frankly. So I know it works. There's many, many churches that are built on pizza. Okay, where am I? Nobody, very few, have a discussion on the impact of the Godhood of Christ on his birth and death. They think the death is normal. It's not. They think the birth is normal. It's not. They think his life is normal. It's not. And the Bible is pounding away at you over and over again to make sure you understand it. So we're mostly on our own here. But some have come before us and the rewards are great for all who wish to proceed. Um, I promise, however, that much, if not most, if all, if not all, that you have been previously taught is unable to withstand the implications of Christ being creator God while on the cross. Unless you've been taught here.
Let me say it this way. All the movies are absolutely wrong. All the movies are wrong. Let me repeat the word all and the word wrong. All wrong. Every single movie. I don't care. You cannot bring me one that's got it right. There are none. None. I've seen them all or heard of them all. Even the latest one. All wrong. Completely wrong. I don't care how much you liked it, how much you think it's great. I don't know how much you cried. It's all wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. All means all. And I know, I've said this before, and and, uh, I know what people think when I say it. They think pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. And that's true. And they attack me and they say, who are you to say such a thing? What are your credentials? Blah, 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 all of that. And um, I, the only answer I got is I'm an old man. I don't care anymore. I don't worry about the income stream. I don't even like my job. Any job. You can't threaten me with firing me. <laughs> I don't care. I'm old. I'm an old man who read John 8.24, John 8.58, John 1.3, Revelation 1.17. Just those. I There's 20, 50 more of them. And concluded that Jesus Christ is creator God himself. He says it over and over and over again. And that affects everything in scripture. And by everything, I mean everything. But it most certainly affects his birth, his death, and his resurrection. And we'll be getting to all of that in a moment. And I want to make sure I say this part into the record. I've said it before. I don't know if I said it this exact way. I get requests to say it again. So would you please say it again so that I can make a copy of it and give it to somebody that I'm mad at. That's pretty much how it's working now. (laughs) So, So this is for those people out there in the ether. Yes, that's a joke. Ether is a joke. People think, wow, are we really, is it really ether? Well, yeah, but not where we thought it was, but that's another lecture. <laughs> so I'm going to include it here at least, as I'm getting, like I said, quite a bit of mail, uh, that, uh, on the issues that are uh, close proximity to this subject that we're on. We're on the subject, the question, you remember the guy from Toronto, uh, Philippe, I think, he wanted to know about Christ feeling pain. That's the subject we're on. I'm explaining all of that to you right now by starting foundationally or fundamentally. There's a bunch of questions. They're all related to this issue. So that's why you have to get it straightened out. So here it goes again. The proof that Adam literally and actually existed and did and said the things recorded. And likewise for the woman who he renamed Eve when he figured something out extraordinary. He went, wow, i got to rename her Eve. He figured out the continuity of germplasm, renamed the woman. I wish he had called her the continuity of germplasm. But he didn't. He called her Eve. Same thing. The proof that Adam literally and actually existed and did and said the things recorded, and likewise for the woman who he renamed Eve and the anointed cherub Satan who had gone throughout the angelic host with his one lie that he had, that he knew was a lie, the proof that that actually happened and they actually existed, and of course they still exist today because they're all immortal in the sense they're uh, spiritually immortal. 
eventually physically immortal. All of that happened, and all of that which is given in Genesis, the, the loss of physical immortality by the man and the woman, the fact that they had physical immortality and they lost it, the, the fact that he was the first federal head, that she is the mother of life, the resulting death of animals, the thorns, the thistles, the sweat, the toil, all of that that happened is proven. All of the curse, all of that was, is proven. By the truth of the virgin birth. The uniqueness of the physical death of Christ. And the reality of his body resurrection and subsequent ascension. You got those? You got the rest of it. So when somebody writes a book and they tell me that Genesis is a bunch of allegorical fable myths. That just are lessons. And everybody can interpret it to whatever lesson they want it to be. I know they have no understanding of who Christ is at all. Or they would never say such a thing. The element of necessity is throughout. I have virgin birth, throw in the crucifixion, body resurrection. Necessity, or if you will, cause and effect. Necessity is attached to each and every one of those. Nothing can be set aside. None of it. You can't take any of it out. You cannot say, because I have necessity. They're all necessary. It's a whole. There isn't a part that I can remove and say, and dismiss it. If I do, that's why I scream at those who dismiss the literalness. Literal, uh, literalness. Is that a word, literalness? I can barely say it. So I hope it's a word. But those who dismiss Adam and Eve as not being literal and actual, uh, they don't realize the necessity, the necessity element that is here. I've just destroyed things when I do that. I just want in destruction. And I scream at them. I just go nuts. And I, yeah, I actually do scream at them. I, I call it ranting now. And it's the same thing. And I have a new t-shirt. The Lord of the ranting idiots. It'll be available soon. Okay. Let's take a look at this again. It's a piece that belongs. And uh, I want everybody to have it before I go back to limitations in variations in progeny. Why are there limitations in variations in progeny? It's the law of limitations of variations in progeny. Why? The Bible calls it kinds. Everything after its own kind. I can't get that until I got this. You can think that through while I read. Here we go. Psalm 39.5. I'll start at 4. Lord, make me... This is David. David, a brilliant, brilliant man. We have no idea how, how, what the kind of thought process that he had. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. So he's telling God, asking God, make sure you teach me. Make sure I understand how frail I am. And the end of my physical life. Make me understand the end of my physical life. And how frail my physical life is and how short my physical life is. Indeed, you have made my days as, as handbreadths, Which is just a measurement of the of the four fingers, how many you can measure his physical life. 
and my age is nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is vapor. There is a key word to learn today. Every man, this is King David, certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. And then he goes on. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. This is King David. And he is saying that your physical essence is vapor and a shadow. Psalm 39:11. When when with rebukes you correct man for sin, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Repeats it. We start here in Psalm 39 because of that I may know how frail I am. The vapor and the shadow, the melt away, the other vapor. Certainly every man is but vapor. Every man is a vapor. Surely every man is like a shadow. I've always been especially interested in Psalm 39 when I first saw it because of this reference to vapor. Why would I want to know about this? He's calling physical forms, the human physical form, the physical body of vapor. And I've been fascinated by that. And, of course, I go to Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It will go right there in Ecclesiastes 1. Because the word translated vapor is also translated as vanity. And it's it's interchangeable, if you will. And if you've studied Ecclesiastes, then you know Solomon has a way of saying that it is all vanity. And mostly translated vanity, vapor and vanity essentially interchangeable. So let's uh, read uh, uh, Solomon here, who is the son of David. David, And biologically, by the way, universally renowned for his biological understanding. He was the wisest biologist probably that ever lived. No, probably. He was the wisest biologist that ever lived. People came from it. Queen of Sheba's story is all about her trying to find out what he knew. He knew things that no one else had known. This is what he writes, Solomon. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He calls himself the preacher. This is He's about to die, by the way. So was David. That was Psalm 144. You can do the math. Here's, here's Solomon, Ecclesiastes. Vapor of vapor, says the preacher. Vapor of vapor. All is vapor. Now you've heard it. Vanity of vanities. Vanities of vanities. All is vanity. You can substitute vapor. It's the same word. The father and son. David and Solomon. They both write everything under the sun. What does under the sun mean to Solomon when he writes it? He says it over and over again. Under the sun. What's he mean? You had this lecture once. Yell it out. Yeah, it's the physical reality. Everything under the sun, everything that is on physical earth is vapor. All is vapor. What's he mean? All men in the physical reality are vapor, like shadows. The physical reality is vapor. Now, also, I understand, and I'll get back to it later, the element of existence in time is also in this, uh, is an element in that 
in the passages that I've read. And I'm just not disregarding it because I don't think it's there. I know it's there. I'm just focusing on the vapor aspect of it. As you know, I've spent a great deal of time investigating what Solomon figured out. I wanted to know what Solomon thought. This is what he wrote as he died. I don't know how long before he died that he wrote this. But he's screaming at you. Physical reality is vapor. Very important to know that. Solomon figured it out and David figured out. Figured it out. I would expect that, father and son. I imagine David told Solomon what he figured out and Solomon wanted to make sure that we got it. Psalm 144.4. Of course, the Holy Spirit is involved in both of them writing it. Psalm 144.4. Man is like a breath, his days like a passing shadow. That's David just before he dies. Physical reality is a shadow. Solomon concludes Ecclesiastes with the purpose of physical reality. See, the purpose of the physical reality. How does that fit into the humanity of Christ? The body is what? Physical. We need to know the purpose of adding physicality or humanity, if you will. So, Solomon, he tells you what it's all about here. The wisest man that ever lived. He writes it down. Here it is. I'll start in Ecclesiastes 12:13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What whole matter is he talking about? Physical existence, your life, physical reality, the whole matter. What is the conclusion of it? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how he concludes. Everything is vapor, except if everything is vapor, then what's left? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he's saying judgment is the purpose of the physical reality. What's he mean? That, by the way, is not very popular. I could go into any church in Anchorage and do this lecture and they would all leave. Especially when I got to this point of judgment is the purpose. And the physical reality is vapor. <laughs> Run from the weird person, they would scream. It's not a popular thing to say nowadays. But nonetheless, it is pure, perfect truth. The physical reality reveals something. It reveals our innermost thoughts, our mind. I reveal my mind to you by my physical characteristics. What we think, what we believe, what we cherish, what we hate, what we reject. And God holds us to account. I want you to note that there's a contrast here. Fear God is on one side. What's on the other side? Fear God, keep his account, or, or keep his commandments. What's on the other side? I'll read it again. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment. So on one side I have fear God. On the other side, I have every work. 
They are not the same. It is the same structure, if you will, as Romans 4, 3 through 4, where believe God is on the, is the opposite of him who works. It's done again here in Ecclesiastics. So you see this side by side opposite again. Fearing God is the opposite of physical work. I am not saved by what I do. I am saved by what I believe. So believe God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every work into judgment. You go out and work as much as you want. It gains you nothing. It will be brought into judgment. If you think you're going to work your way to salvation, you are horribly mistaken. You believe your way into salvation. Is a, I believe, um, I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head. I can't come up with it. I, I hope it was Ryrie. It may not have been. But he said, uh, judge a sermon by what you are told to believe, not what you are told to do. We are to believe, not do. We do because we believe. We don't do in order to be saved. We cannot save ourselves. So the purpose of the physical reality, which is all vapor, is to believe God. It is man's all to believe God. Fear God. Believe God. Fear, believe, same thing. For this is man's all. Believe God. Believe what he says. So what does he say? What does he want you us to believe? That's man's all is to believe God about something. That is the purpose of the physical reality, which is all vapor. Now, the vapor is governed by ubiquitous law. We know that. Universal law. I have all of these laws that are governing the vapor, if you will. Laws that God placed, that God designed, that God sustains. And I am now, I have, if you want to think of it this way, you can. I have the illusion that the physical reality has something besides empty space in it. I started out, as you know, teaching junior high. My first basketball team was a junior high team. I knew every single boy on that team. 1971. How's that for scary? Every single boy on that, on that team, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that they were filled with empty space. No question about it. That was my first uh, coaching job. Junior high boys. Empty space. But the physical reality are governed by laws. God put them in place. He designed them. He sustains them. And it gives us, if you wish, it gives us concept that this is real. It is real. But that's not what it's for. We, us, me, you, are living souls. Not physical beings. We're living souls. All of us. Living souls are non-physical. We're placed by God into a physical realm that provides lessons for us. That's what he's doing. Believe God. Keep his commandments. That is man's all. Those, by the way, fear God is believe God. Believe is non-physical. Believe is a spiritual property, a mental property. We're placed in, by God into a physical realm that provides lessons, reveals us as to what we choose to be because we have will. Will, again, non-physical. Will, who will worship and love the vapor? 
Who then will worship and love the Creator who is not vapor? He's real. We think the vapor is real. In fact, I'm I'm often on the Internet because I get questions from it and I go to the places where the questions arise. And I marvel at how many people refer to God in certain different ways. They call Him everything from your imaginary friend, to your sky daddy, to all kinds of things. It's astonishing to me. Why take the chance? You know, what's the point? Just, if you don't want to, you don't want to believe him and you don't want to do what he says, though he's created you, why go out of your way to be insulting? What's in it for you there? I don't get it. It would never occur to me to do that. That, by the way, is Chronister's 11th law of capacity. We'll explain that some other day. If you had the capacity to avoid doing that, you wouldn't have never done it. Anyway. Who will worship and love the vapor? Whether that's your own body. By the way, loving your body has an expiration date on it. You're not going to love it for long. He's going to make sure. used to be a joke back when I was going to what passed for theological school I had a friend that said uh, he'll take everything that you love away from you just to prove that you're an idiot and I had a shirt that I really liked my shirt and he spilled chocolate ice cream on it and ruined my favorite Hawaii Aloha shirt I'm very upset and his response wasn't I'm sorry let me buy you another shirt his response was you shouldn't have loved it that Ultimately, he's right. It's just a shirt. Who will worship and love the vapor or the physical reality? Who will then worship and love the spiritual reality? Love the creator who is spirit. Note the non-physical aspects of worship and love. That's what's going on here in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Who will fear God, believe God, and love what he says, keep his commandments, he commands us to believe Him. 1 John 3.23 Who then will reject God and love themselves? That's where we're at. The physical then testifies of the state of mind. What you love testifies who you are. And once we got, we've got the vapor where it belongs now, we get to ask the real questions. Now I get to start the lecture. You're laughing, but it's actually the case. Obviously, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, descended into his physical reality that he makes, that he put the laws in place. He is the one that did all of this, and he has a purpose. That's Proverbs 34 and John 3.13. He uses the virgin birth as a mechanism to add humanity. When he does that, he adds a necessity element to it. It necessitates that he automatically is body resurrected. It can't be any other way. Can't. It's impossible. And it also makes his death on the cross, here in the middle, absolutely an unimaginable event that's unexplainable. So when somebody tries to explain it, I just start out by going, wow, idiot alert. It can be explained. Bring a lunch. It's going to take you a long time. 
your movie, just on the crucifixion part. It's going to be days. Back in the old days, remember, raise your hand. No, don't. Movies had intermissions. Remember movies with intermissions? Yes, we would get up. See how old you are? We would get up and we would go get popcorn in the intermission. It's like halftime. When's the last time that has ever happened? The attention span of the... Oh, I shouldn't say this. (laughs) Of the average public school graduate... Remember, I taught in the public school. Can't sustain a movie that long. Where the average sermon is today, do you know, do you know, do you know? Average sermon length, what have I gone already? I'm at 45 minutes, almost done. I can see it ruling. But what is the average? It's 18 minutes tops. 18 minutes. That's it. People cannot sustain it. I've often thought we'll go 20 minutes and then get something to eat, but then everybody would be asleep. The last, it was a, it was a com- concept that I have. As you know, eventually I'm getting rid of all these chairs. We're going to do it here pretty soon. We're going to take some, some of this time that I've been talking about around Cinco de Stevo. Um, and yes, I put that in the internet because I'm trying to corrupt all of them. For those on the internet, that's my birthday. You, you might not know Cinco de Stevo. It's the 5th of May. But anyway, the point of it is, is that uh, I'd like to go back to where we were and, and straight. This is not our place. It's a lot of work. That's why I put all this system in so that I could cut my time down. We could go back to our big tables and such, as I said last week. Okay. Obviously, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, descended into his physical reality or his physic in physical realm that he constructed himself. Proverbs 34, John 3:13. And went about making certain that everyone who came in contact with him immediately knew something. They immediately learned that he, Jesus Christ, had the power to override the laws of the physical reality. He did it all the time. That's why he did it. He suspended the natural laws. They're his laws. It's not a problem for him. It's a big yeah, duh. He's the lawmaker, the real one. He can do whatever he wants. It's all his stuff. He's the designer of it. So all these questions now that people have written to me about Christ feeling pain. What was it like for Christ to feel pain? Was it like me when I feel pain? No. Did he add humanity? This is probably my least favorite. Did he add humanity because he didn't know what it was like? They'll say that. Jesus Christ added humanity in order to learn what it's like to be a dumb human. He didn't have, yeah, he had to experience uh, humanity. That's why he did it. That is indefensible idiocy. But it's, it's common, if not, not certain. So all these questions about Christ, he walking through, he walked through people. It's what he did. He's surrounded by people. They're trying to capture him. They're trying to capture God in a cup. We're going to handcuff God. He walks through the people. 
Bible makes sure you know that. Big crowd of people, he doesn't walk around them. He walks through them. The walking on water, we're all... Uh, listen, if you, take, if you don't understand that Peter is a type of Israel in that lesson, drowning Israel, and he is over the waters of judgment, reaching out, saving Israel. That's why he says, uh, says, save me. That is something that Israel says to Christ at the end of the age. And he reaches down to the whole nation of Israel and saves all of them. That's what he does. He's the king of Israel. He loves Israel. He's a Jew. That's going to be a major shock to a lot of people with bomb vests on. There aren't 70 virgins. There's one Barnabas virgin sitting on the throne, and he's a Jew. That's the humanity that he took. It's an extraordinary truth. But he walked through people, and he appeared in rooms, and he hides his identity, and his crucifixion, his death process, his resurrection, all of those are fundamentally the same subject. All of them. To repeat... Jesus Christ is God inside perfect humanity. None of you have ever seen or heard or been in the presence of perfect humanity. None of you, in spite of what your spouse says or your children, none of you have ever seen perfect humanity. You can't describe it. It's indescribable. We don't know what it's like. Everything Jesus Christ, God inside perfect humanity, everything he says or does then must begin with that fact. When you read the Bible, he says, I am God inside perfect humanity. So everything he says and everything he does, does he have things that he does that don't make sense? Maybe to you, if you say, wait a minute, that I don't understand that. It probably doesn't belong here. You are horribly in the ditch, digging deeper. Jesus Christ is never subject to his own physical laws. He's not subservient. He's in authority. He's the above the law, if you will, to use a colloquialism. He enters into, descends into his physical realm that is corrupted by sin. What's the question now that we ask? We ask, what purpose? What's his purpose? Why is he doing this? Why is he reaching down to his corrupted, dying realm? Before answering that, ask this as well. Does his purpose always receive consideration? Or does he just, okay, for today I think I'll just play cards. Or maybe I'll sit on the beach Maybe I'll make a sandcastle. Does his purpose always receive consideration? Is it always foremost? Is he purposed in his purpose? Or does he disregard it? He always focuses on, he's obedient to his, he never sets aside his purpose. He always keeps his purpose as his purpose. It's his primary, it's his reason. He doesn't stray. He's perfect humanity and he's God. And if you, if once you figure that out and you conclude thusly as you should, then everything he does or says must be evaluated in the context of his purpose, especially his death process. Is he in control of it? He can't help but be in control of it. Every tiny element he is in control of it. He's outside of time. He's in control of his birth process. 
He doesn't need a pediatrician. No offense. He's in control of his resurrection process. He is God again inside perfect humanity. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. He doesn't think like you. He's God. You're not. He doesn't think like me. Never project yourselves, myself, ourselves, our sin into him. He doesn't have any. We do. Quit trying to make him like you. I know it makes you feel better. I don't care. Trying to make yourself feel better by putting sin, your sin, into God is stupid. So cast aside questions that have sinful humanity being placed onto him. Get rid of them. Don't have any. Does he feel pain? Not to pick on the gentleman that sent that in. Does he feel pain like? Does he have control of his mental system? Does he have control of his physical system? Duh. Can he decide what he wants anytime he wants it? His death process was completely, unimaginably unique. Doesn't like yours. He doesn't lose control. Can't. It's impossible. Cast aside our silly emotional desire to make Christ weak and afraid and subject to the laws of the physical reality. That's what, that's us. That's our traits. It's never his traits. Instead ask, how is what he just said aloud or did fit into his purpose? And doing that solves the physical pain question, which is a sinful human projection question. Now, You can ask now. You get to ask the least obvious of the least obvious questions. Like what really happened at the crucifixion? What really changed after the curse? How are those two questions related? When the curse came, things changed. What really happened at the curse? Why did animals die? They weren't designed to die. Now they die. Did Adam know they were going to die when he takes the poison? Yeah. Figured it out. He also knew that his entire progeny, us, would all die when he takes the poison. Figured it out. Brilliant, brilliant person, Adam. None like him that is human. The only one that is called Adam again in all of the Bible is Christ, and he's God himself. This was a spectacular mind. Pure, perfect. Had a good teacher. Figured it all out. Took the poison anyway. What made him do it? We've talked about that many, many times. What really happened? That's why we have to ask questions about gravity, radioactivity, my favorite, electricity. What really happened at that crucifixion? Did anybody kill him? Can't kill him. Anybody hurt him? Not physically. Anybody resurrect him? He resurrects himself. Triune Godhead. He's part of the Triune Godhead. Not parts, but 
He is the triune Godhead. That's what triune means. So there's every question you have about Christ. Did he get tired? Run out of gas. Thirsty? When he says, I thirst, and we say, I thirst, is it the same thirst? Hair fall out? You get those kind of questions all the time. Did he ever have a fever? The measles. Did his mother ever teach him anything? Did anybody ever teach him anything? No. All those questions are the same, aren't they? And that makes that crucifixion really, really different. If you think that crucifixion is the same as everybody else's crucifixion, you are desperately in error. It is not, has no characteristic. And the centurion, as you know, you've heard me say it many times, the centurion went, this crucifixion has nothing in it like any other crucifixion, and I have done thousands of them. It's completely different. Has to be different. He's God inside a perfect humanity. That's how you start. Every question about Jesus Christ is this is God inside a perfect humanity with a purpose. What's his purpose? To reveal himself. To reveal himself is what? A God who loves something. What does he love? He loves things. What are the things he loves? The living souls. What's he want the things that are living souls to do? To choose to believe him so that they will be what? Restored. And they will no longer love the vapor. It's as simple as that. What's the old saying? Love people, use things. Not the other way around. You can reword it now, can't you? Love living souls, use the vapor. Not the other way around. Why are you loving the vapor? What is wrong with us? We do. We love our vapor. It's vapor. Let's rise and be dismissed.